When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, where we analyze and discuss how these subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am stupendously excited to have this topic to discuss what we want to discuss today. If you've been following our Twitter, which, by the way, if you're not, what are you doing? Our Twitter rocks. You know what's coming we had started a project where we had done a Iron Man and Captain America Marvel Cinematic Universe MCU character case study on each character. We wanted to round that out and talk about the big three. This week is our MCU Thor character case study. I am ready to channel the Bifrost busting through my muscles. I am so ready to get all things MCU and all things Norse. I can't even tell you. I'm literally shaking my fists in anticipation and excitement. I can attest to that. I am witnessing the shaking of the fist, and I can also almost see lightning just bursting from your fingertips. It is very exciting to talk about Thor, because in our mini-series talking about these great characters from the MCU, we have had a lot of fun with finding the sort of mythological counterparts for Iron Man and Captain America, and those can be sort of an adventure. Like, how do we pull them back to ancient mythology? Well, how do we pull Thor back to ancient mythology? Oh, wait, he's a character who erupted right out of a mythological tradition and who was presumably, based on archaeological and literary evidence, as popular to the people of the time that exalted him as he is to us today as a Marvel superhero. So I think it's going to be fun tonight to track some of the uh, sort of mythological influences on the development of him as a superhero into the mighty Thor but also to bring in some of the other influences that we can find and some of the uh, sort of beautiful and powerful things about Thor's arc as a character as we watch him grow from the would-be king of Asgard 
to the man he is now, embarking on a new adventure and a new phase of his life with new companions. Let us hop on the Bifrost. Humdul, do you see our way forward? Let us go down Yggdrasil, the world ash tree, and let us pass through the journey and through the realms of both Jodenheim, Vanaheim, Nidadovalir, and Midgard, and find ourselves at Asgard, and join Odin in the halls of Valhalla, and raise our cups to the fallen warriors, and do our Thor podcast. Good God. You are really, really pumped about this. Laurel, people want to reach us and support us. How can they do it? Well, the best place is going to be Twitter. Uh, Like you said, at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. Definitely check us out and hit us up there if you have anything to add, any questions or any suggestions. Uh, You can also hit us up on Facebook or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com for further content. We have blogs there. We have uh, lots of ways for you to reach us on the contact form. You can find our Patreon there as well. Patreon is a great place where you can support the work that we're doing here for as little as a dollar a month. You can give us a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever you can spare. That helps to support us as we continue to grow. And you get access to additional content, including monthly bonus episodes. So that's a great way to support the Midnight Myth podcast. Another way to support is to get some merch. And you can find that on our website as well. So www.midnightmyth.com. Click shop and you'll head over to our store where you can find t-shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, tote bags, and tons more. Lots of fun stuff there, including merch for our side podcast, The Wheel of Ka, where Derek and Steve go through every book in the Dark Tower. So that is a great way to also get involved and help us out and show how much you love the podcast. And we hit a major landmark this week. We now have 500 Twitter followers. That's fucking awesome. So thank you to everyone who's following us on Twitter. By the way, if every one of you gave us a five-star review, our listenership would probably double overnight with the visibility. So please go and do that if you do nothing else. And that will help us get more Midnight Myth content out to all of our amazing, fantastic, beautiful Asgardian listeners. That is a great point. It's a free way to support. It takes two to five minutes of your time. Just head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and smash that five-star button and leave us a couple of words about what you think of the podcast. So maybe it's the fact that I do have a adaptation of the Norse World Tree tattooed on my left shoulder, but I have a certain proclivity and love for the Thor franchise that is unique to the other MCU big franchises. And when I say big franchises, I mean the ones that get standalone movies for that particular hero. Thor is one of my favorite MCU heroes. Because of the movies, I have gone back and started reading Thor comics, and it has become one of my favorite comics. I am elated to talk about this. I've said before on the podcast that when I first encountered the first Thor movie, I was deep in a special project studying Norse history, e.g. Viking history, during the quote-unquote Dark Ages. And that is a history that I've always found interesting, fascinating, also sometimes frustrating because there's just so much we don't know and there's so much guesswork and, you know, patchworking the actual historical record. And this happened right as when the first Thor movie came out. So I latched on to that character very early in my MCU days, and it has stuck with me. And 
I think we can track the Thor character development in a few big significant ways. But before I do that, I think I'd be doing injustice to the Midnight Myth mission if I didn't at least touch upon the historical and mythological record by which characters, or pardon me, writers like Stan Lee were so inspired to incorporate a Norse god into their mythology. So a few basic nuts and bolts I'd like to talk, if you'll permit me, Laurel. Oh yeah, please. I'd like to talk a little bit, and just a little bit, about the era of Viking. Yeah, let's go. Let's put some horns on our heads. Just kidding. That is uh, not historically accurate, is it? Yeah, no, true fact here. There has never been a single piece of evidence that any Viking warrior ever had a horn on their helmet. That was mostly Wagner, right? Incorporating that. It came about in 18th and 19th century operas where Vikings were characters and part of the costumes were that they had horns on their heads. And these operas were so popular, Vikings and horned helmets kind of became synonymous, though there's no historical basis for it. However, I'd like to say this, Midnight Myth listeners, however you imagine your Vikings, do you imagine them with horns in your head? Go right ahead. That's not a a way to dialogue with them historically, but imaginatively, mythologically, I think that's fine. Thanks. Anyway, onward. So the era of Viking, the Scandinavian countries that we know today have a long history. A lot of, we talk about this a lot at the Midnight Myth, but the actual seismic cultural impact that the collapse of the Western Roman Empire had on the the, the places that would now be defined as Western, Central, and Northern Europe cannot be understated. The entire era of Viking lives because of that shadow. And what you had were thriving societies in the Scandinavian and thriving by, by, by means of high birth rates, uh, growing population, Uh, led to a scarcity of resource. Now, I should caveat, everything we know about Viking history comes from A, archaeological evidence, so the actual remains of the Vikings, and B, historical record that was written hundreds of years after the era of Viking ended. It sounds kind of similar to what we know about Arthur and the time of King Arthur, that we are still unearthing this archaeological evidence, but we also only have much later literary evidence to go on. So we're kind of piecing that together. Very interesting. Yes, but I mean, the Vikings were real. Arthur probably wasn't, you know, in the way that we, the way the stories articulate them. So, I mean, the era Viking was a a huge force of change in the post-Roman, you know, Northern Central Europe Dark Age. King Arthur, not really sure, very much more elusive to pin down. Yeah, understandable, but just interesting connections there. Well, that it goes to the heart of what a dark a dark age actually yeah. is. Now, we typically think of dark ages as times where knowledge, technology, the the benchmarks that we say show a civilization is advancing. Um, a dark age is when we see these reverse. But a dark age is also a point in time where there are not as many literate people. Hence, they're not as many historians. Yeah. Hence, when we look back, it is dark to us. We don't have a really firm grasp of what happened because there weren't enough people writing down human events to tell us now what happened. And the Vikings were not a literate culture. They did have some runes, but they weren't able to write down the histories of the Viking raids or the Viking kings. 
So the historical record that we have comes from A, monks primarily during the era of Viking writing down what they saw of the Vikings. However, they were often the victim of Viking plunder. So it comes from a very biased and victimized frame of reference. And then B, people writing centuries later, in particular medieval Scandinavian historians that wanted to go back and reclaim something of this era with hundreds of years between the events they were describing and what actually happened. And then we couple that with archaeological evidence and we get a loose and fluid picture of what the era of Viking was. The dates can be roughly put to the 8th century through the 11th century of the Common Era. The era Viking ends when all Viking kings convert to Catholicism and decide to join the sort of European Catholic international community that's generally thought of as the end. The Vikings had settled in major areas. One area is the in Normandy in France and became the Normans, who then went to, to become the first kings of medieval England, forming medieval England. The Vikings were also establishing massive trade routes um, for all sorts of goods that linked Europe from everywhere, from Greenland to the Islamic Middle East, even to the North American continent. With their seafaring ways, they traveled and they linked the world. There's one common element to the era of Viking, and any historian of Norse will say this. What links the era of Viking is the shared religious tradition. And when that religious tradition ends, so historians say, does the era of Viking. So what makes a person from Sweden or Norway a Viking versus a European depends upon whether they are sacrificing to Odin or they are Catholic. That is the demarker to which we have ascribed. Now, whether this marker is right or wrong, man, tough to say, but that's what we have and that's what we have to live with. In other words, to understand the Viking, one must understand their mythic tradition. And in that mythic tradition enters in the mighty Thor. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. Very cool. So Thor in the era of Viking is believed to be the most popular of deities. The reason that we know this is that Thor pops up in almost every Viking myth and there are more archaeological remains around temples believed to be temples of Thor. And Thor was believed to be the god of the everyday Viking. So if you are an average Viking going out on doing your average Viking thing, whether that is in the summer raiding the English monks, or whether that is hunkering down and becoming a farmer, Thor was primarily the deity you most likely communed with sacrifice to. The Viking religion is polytheistic and what we call now pagan. So that means that there are many gods and these gods are personified forces of the universe that people go and worship. A Viking religion also operates within the mythopoetic intellectual framework. Now, this is a big term. We've talked about it before. I want to bring it up again, and I will link this back to the MCU. Mythopoetic can generally be understood as pre-logical tough thing to swallow. Like, haven't human beings always been logical? In a certain respect, yes, human beings have always been able to learn and understand things. But mythopoetic thinking ascribes human events, human knowledge, and the way that humans organize and translate and distribute knowledge in two ways, myths and poetry. 
That's how one generation learns from the next generation. That's where all knowledge comes from. It doesn't come from a regimented educational system that teaches ways to understand the world within a particular pedagogy. It comes from, why did this happen? There's a song. Why did this happen? There's a myth. What, how will we prevent this bad thing from happening? Here's a song. Here's a myth. That's how we do it. Mythopoetic thinking does not have what we call mutual exclusivity, meaning that two things can simultaneously be true that to a logical society don't cannot be true. What's a great example of this? It sounds like I'm talking in riddles. Your ancestors called it magic. We, you call it science. We come from a place that is where they are the same. God, I fucked up that quote. Thor, the MCU character, is the mythopoetic character. He lives in a world where there is both magic and science. And though that those two things shouldn't be able to exist simultaneously in the universe, in Asgard, there is both magic, there is both science. They operate harmoniously together. Thor is the mythopoetic Marvel hero. I love that. And I love thinking about it in the context of uh, how on earth did people decide to make comic books about Thor? And from that, how on earth did people decide it was a good idea to make movies out of the comic books about Thor? Because Thor is kind of so wrong he's right. And it's a big risk to be like, let's pluck this guy out of an obscure-ish mythological tradition that has a really uh, difficult to parse and tangled history that we don't really understand completely and we just have a whole lot of fragments of. Let's put him into this context that is like wrestling with this comic book cheese and with these overly serious sometimes tones and try to make those work. Uh, so not only are we looking at, uh, you know, magic and science living side by side, but like the incredible grandeur and weight of having gods and the struggles of gods who run the nine realms and also the sort of outright crazy tackiness of like landing this guy in New Mexico and his flowing red cape. It's kind of wild. Uh, and until they really embrace it in Thor Ragnarok, you sometimes don't even get the like full cheekiness of it. So I love that. I would also say that understanding it as a mythopoetic hero, which means there aren't things like logical contradictions. Paradoxes don't exist right, in mythopoetic yeah. thinking the way that we would think of them. And one another great piece of evidence of this is when Loki in Thor in Dark World is before Odin, and Loki says, I went to Midgard, e.g. Earth, to rule as a benevolent god. Odin says, we're not gods. We're born. We live. We die. We're mortal. However, they constantly refer to humans in Midgard as mortals. Thor constantly calls himself the god of thunder. Other people call him the god of thunder. They are both not gods and gods all at the same time. They are both, Thor lives in this logical contradiction that should not be, but somehow is. The idea that the universe is in part magic and in part science. And in that sort of um, framework, we see the, we see the Asgardians. 
Do the Asgardians live in another universe, another dimension? Are they on a planet? If so, why isn't it round? All of these questions have no bearing and no place in Thor. This is not a mythology that should be understood logically. It just is. But at the same time, it exists side by side with characters like Tony Stark, who are, you know, logical, scientific to a T. Even, you know, Steve Rogers, Captain America, his entire power set is based upon his inner moral goodness and modern technology. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Thor is, you know, thousands of years old. Like, how do we square this circle? You don't. It's mythopoetic. There's no squaring the circle. The circle is the square. Oh, my God. That's great. So I'd love to, uh, using this framework and using this knowledge of the mythopoetic society and reasoning and this knowledge of the era of Viking and the kind of legacy that the god Thor in the Norse tradition has left, I'd love to take that into the character arc that we see unfold over several movies. So we're talking about Thor, Thor the Dark World. We're talking about Avengers, Age of Ultron, Infinity War, and Endgame, right? You you forgot Ragnarok. And Ragnarok, of course. So we have a multitude of movies where we follow this character on his journey to becoming or not becoming king of Asgard. And I don't believe we dropped a spoiler wall yet, but we will be dropping one now. There will be spoilers for every movie that Thor is in, is in the, in the MCU, including Endgame. Including Endgame, yep, yep. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to explore how the creators of this universe have endowed Thor uh, with so many of the qualities of the person that we talked about in the Norse tradition, but how much they have diverged from that as well, to try and create a really human character, probably one of the most human of all of the characters in the MCU, Given that he is a non-human character, it's kind of remarkable how much we see vulnerability, fallibility, uh, and wrestling with one's inner demons in a way that is extremely relatable. Yeah, totally. And I think that comes from, you kind of mentioned that Thor was the god of the everyday Viking. He sort of gained this reputation for being the people's god. Uh, he made it his business to take care of people, to be seen on earth and to watch out for people who were less powerful than him. And in his stories, he's the God who's always drinking people under the table, who is dressing up as, uh, as Freya in order to trick a frost giant into getting married. Who's pulling off these kind of crazy schemes with or without Loki, uh, that make us laugh, that make us feel like that's the kind of guy we want to grab a beer with. Uh, So he had this very relatable quality that I think brings the godlike figure down to earth. And I think that was very much absorbed in the MCU's Thor. I totally agree with that. I think we can track Thor. Well, I'm going to put this thesis out here. So one, that he is the mythopoetic character, and that's the universe in which he is, where it is both logical and not logical and pre-logical in its very nature. And so that we can't ascribe our modern thinking onto a character like Thor because he existed thousands of years before it and his technology or magic, whatever it is, is beyond us. I also think the Thor movies, in particular his three movies, can be read as Thor as the tragic hero of Marvel. 
And I think his story is the saddest. Now, I know Iron Man fans, you're going to wave Endgame at me and say, hey, Iron Man laid down his life and that was tragic and I don't want to get on a what's sadder off. You know, like, it's not a competition. However, Iron Man stories, I don't think, are fundamentally tragic. I think because he's a futurist, they're fundamentally aspirational. If you look at the first Thor movie and the main beats is Thor needs to learn that he sucks. That's the main theme of that movie. He needs to learn he's not ready to be king. He may not even be ready to wield Mjolnir. He has to learn that his brother, who he thought is one of his best friends and closest companions, is actually a backstabbing, conniving bastard. He has to learn that his entire philosophy of just go to war with anyone you dislike is wrong. And in that, he learns that he has to fall in love with a Midgardian, a woman in New Mexico, only to sever his entire connection to her to save a planet of people he wanted to kill, right? That's the climax of that movie yeah. is he wanted to kill everyone in Jotunheim and he has to cut himself off from the woman he loves, Jane Foster, by destroying the, the Bifrost to save genocide from people that he started the movie wanting to genocide. He ends the movie having defeated Loki, having like reclaimed, you know, his father's respect being like, man, I'm not ready to be king. I'm not even close. And man, I fell in love and I'm not able to see or be with the woman I love. And he ends it in a very dark place. Dark World is called Dark World. Yeah. This is about Thor's dark world. This is about how empty he feels. This is a movie about his sorrow. This is a movie where he can no longer sit with his friends and drink with them and celebrate his victories. This is a movie where he finally brings himself to save Loki from prison, knowing full well that Loki will probably betray him. And still he watches Loki die. And at the very end of it, the only comfort he gets is to be like, I was never meant to be a king. Like that's his reward is to be like, I'm going to go be with the mortals. I can't ever even think I could bear the responsibility of ruling these nine realms. Ragnarok. Ragnarok is when Thor has fully embraced his hero identity. I am no longer Thor the king. He says it a few times in the movie because this is what heroes do. It's what heroes do. He embraces his hero identity. It gets his father killed. It gets his sister released from hell she ends up banishing him and Loki to Sakaar. He becomes a slave. His hammer's broken. He rallies himself to fight this only to have Asgard destroyed before his very eyes and leaving him floating through space, the king of the Asgardian diaspora, the king of the great Asgardian refugee crisis. Yeah, king of refugees. I mean, this is a, like... If that's not a tragic character arc, forget the fun and laughter, but look at what that character has gone through in those three movies. It's tragic. Then we tack on Infinity War, in which, because of Thor, the snap happens. No way to mince words. Because he didn't aim for the head so he could gloat at Thanos, the snap happens. And what does that leave him in Endgame? The most broken Avenger. He's no longer the mightiest. He's the brokenest. And 
what character is more tragic? What character more embodies the Shakespearean and Greek tragedy? What character is more responsible for their own downfall? Thor is fighting his own hubris in every single phase of his stories in all of the Marvel movies, and he never quite beats it. Well, and if you look at where the Thor franchise began with the first standalone Thor movie, it was directed by the great Shakespearean actor Kenneth Branagh. So they had this in their mind. They understood that this was a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions or that it needed the gravity and the weight of that kind of feel. So we got started with a character who was destined for uh, this kind of trial and this kind of testing. And Thor is absolutely tested throughout every single one of his adventures to see if he is, quote unquote, worthy. And worthiness or worth, I think, is the driving uh, impulse behind this character. Whether it's worthiness for the throne of Asgard or worthiness to be loved by Jane Foster or uh, worthiness to be loved by his father and brother. So this is a character who is driven by his place in the world and his perception of what he is worth. That being manifest, of course, by his ability to pick up and wield the hammer Mjolnir, which is a, a literal exemplification of one's worthiness. So using that, I want to kind of jump into some research that I did for this podcast because I found in re-watching the Thor movies and the Thor scenes from uh, the bigger Avengers pieces that the central relationship to the Marvel-Thor mythos was absolutely the relationship between Thor and Loki. Yes, there are love stories. Yes, there is a very important father-son relationship between Thor and Odin, but I think at the end of the day, this is a story about two brothers. And sibling rivalries are not new in storytelling, mythology, or literature. Think about Cain and Abel, the sort of prototypical uh, sibling rivalry between two siblings whose uh, jealousy and bitterness about each other turned into like the great example of uh, fratricide. Or think about Romulus and Remus, who are the mythical founders of Rome, who suckled at a she-wolf and yet uh, could not find common ground and ended up slaying one another. Oh, yeah. Me and my sister in a cosmic battle. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, the sisters from King Lear. Sibling rivalry is something that pops up in Shakespeare a lot, which is something we just mentioned with the sort of tragic hero narrative for Thor. Um so I think it's definitely central to understanding Thor is understanding his relationship to Loki and how it evolves over the Thor franchise movies and the Avengers movies. So from that, I wanted to turn an eye to kind of why is it that we have so many stories of sibling rivalry and what in the Thor-Loki dynamic is sort of tied to that kind of universal inspiration. Love it. Let's dive right in. So I turn my mind to psychology. And there is a well-known psychologist named Alfred Adler, who is kind of the early proponent for an idea of birth order effects. So this uh, means if, if there were birth order effects, it means that whether you are the firstborn, the secondborn, middle child, or the youngest, or wherever you are in that kind of family order, determines your personality and determines your kind of outlook on life, determines your behaviors. So if I am the first, second, or third son, there is a correlation between where I was born and how I behave? 
Yeah, and okay. this will be based on how you relate to the other people in your family. So if you think about like a firstborn, like me, I was born and for a couple of years, I was the only star, the only bright shining star in my parents' life. So they directed all of their uh, resources, all of their energy and all of their love upon me. And that was awesome. And then my sister came along and totally destroyed my life. Hannah, if you're listening, you didn't destroy my life. I love you. But those parental resources of attention and energy got diluted. So there was another person kind of in the room to take some of that away from me. Sure. I get where you're going. The first day I was home from the hospital, my sister bit me. My two years, my, she was two at the time. She's two years, she's not two anymore, but two years older than me. She bit me in my first day home. I can understand that. I have been in that position, but I want to turn an eye to Adler's uh, language when he talks about the relationships between firstborns and the next child that comes along, which is that when that happens, the firstborn can feel like they have been dethroned. This is exactly what Adler says about the firstborn and what happens when the second one comes along. Mm. Dethroned. So when we look to Thor and Loki, who are two siblings locked in this endless struggle to be worthy of the throne of Asgard, we have to think about the kind of relationship that leads to these sort of feelings of jealousy or these feelings of needing to prove oneself worthy. So to dig a little bit more into Adler, for some context, he was an Austrian psychologist working around the early 20th century. He's not that Austrian psychologist working around the early 20th century, but they were contemporaries. So I'm talking about Sigmund Freud. And these two had a lot in common in their kind of early years. They would meet at these uh, weekly salons and discuss new and interesting developments in psychology. And for a while, they were really well connected uh, and really interested in each other's work. And then Adler kind of broke from the psychoanalytical front that Freud was developing and developed his own school of psychology, which is now uh, generally known as individual psychology. The major difference between these two was that Freud was deeply interested in the interiority of his subjects. So uh, what is going on in the uh, deep recesses of your mind and the sort of makeup of your mind. That's a major reductionist uh, kind of summary of it. But Adler was more interested in exteriority. So this is a guy who was turning a lot of his research and a lot of his practice to the um, external forces that work upon each individual. And most of that was based upon one's perception of their personal superiority or inferiority. So he was working with superiority or inferiority complexes. Oh, this is very, very Thor and Loki here. It is. And so birth order for him had to do with how each child being born perceives their personal status within the family constellation. So do I feel superior because I'm the firstborn and the leader? Or do I feel inferior because I'm the middle child and I don't get as much attention? Uh, all kinds of things like that. And he believed that this would shape your personality, along with, of course, many other factors. Well, you know, it's interesting in the first Thor movie that when Loki lets the frost giants in during Thor's coronation, Thor's supposed to be king. So Thor is the older brother. Thor is the superior. It's his birthright. It's his day to be the king. 
Loki sneaks in some frost giants just to kind of spoil that. Yeah. And it ends up precipitating the entire events. Like Loki really kind of becomes an accidental villain. Yeah. He isn't really trying to take over Asgard. He just kind of wanted to spoil Thor's Thor's day. And it starts the spiraling effect where one little deception, one little lie. And in that his inferiority complex feeling so inferior to Thor he has to do something to like knock him down a peg that he ends up like getting himself to the more exalted place where Thor is exiled and he's king. And he's just like, well, this worked out well. I guess I'm not inferior. And it is exasperated by the fact that we learn in that movie that Loki is not as guardian. He is a runt of a yeah, frost he feels giant. Like an outsider. He feels like I am the adopted younger brother who's actually a monster that the Asgardians have warned against. He is the thing that Thor has spent his life wanting to like wield Yolmir and crush and destroy. His little brother is actually kin to those things. Bringing into this dynamic where now Loki's full-on villain. Like, all right, well... I will destroy the place that I am from, which is Jotunheim, to prove to my father that I'm worth it so I can be more Thor-like who wanted to destroy Jotunheim. And then it's up to Thor to save Jotunheim. Yeah, yeah. That's which such a good point. ends with Odin, who like screams at Thor at the beginning that he's unworthy, being like, I am proud of you, son. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, and just to look at some of the conclusions that are drawn about where you fall in birth order and the uh, the behaviors that you'll exhibit, the oldest uh, is kind of destined to be dethroned by the next child. They have to learn to share, uh, whether that's toys or food or glory. Uh, parental expectations are usually very high and they're given lots of responsibility and are expected to set an example. The first Thor. child? Yeah. yeah. They also, uh, on the sort of shadow level of that, can become really strict or be, can become really uh, authoritarian in nature. They feel like they deserve the power that they have and that they should stay in that position of high status. Uh, then if we look at, you know, the second child and what is expected of them or what is, uh, you know, perceived of them through this Adlerian psychological lens, they will always feel like someone is ahead and they are prone to competition. They're prone to wanting to overtake the older child or become a rebel and try to outdo them so that this competition turns into a kind of rivalry. And that brings me to some uh, much later research uh, in the late 1990s. There was this guy, Frank Sullaway, who wrote a book called Born to Rebel. And this, I think, is interesting in sort of uh, understanding the, the difference between Thor and Loki's world outlooks rather than just their behavior. This book suggested through a, a sort of historical analysis of people from the scientific revolution and their birth order, uh, that birth order had effects on uh, the traits of conscientiousness and openness. So what I mean by that is this guy's research showed a pattern of firstborns were more conscientious, more socially dominant, less agreeable, and less open to new ideas than laterborns. So the firstborn children were more likely to uphold the status quo 
in a time like the scientific revolution, when everyone is like counting on people to make these big uh, sort of risky moves, firstborns weren't really doing that. But laterborns were really involved in these innovative technologies. They were embracing innovative technologies, and they were more prone to exhibit uh, sort of rebellious or revolutionary thinking. So they're mm. more prone or more likely to upset the natural order or the status quo, which when you look at Thor and Loki, Loki is the god of mischief. Loki is more prone to upset the status quo. He is, by definition, an outsider who wants to put himself on the throne so that he can change the way that Asgard runs and treats the Nine Realms. And Thor is so much more invested in the standard Asgardian. We are warriors. Absolutely. We govern the Nine Realms with a hammer, which we will build when we have to. We'll clunk on the head when we are when we feel aggrieved and uh, more invested in the standard Asgardianess, where Loki disconnected from that. So it's like, well, I can't really be Asgardian. Hey, Thanos, can you give me Midgard? <laughs> right. But what's interesting, I think, about this, and, you know, considering all of this research by, you know, great minds like Adler and Soloway, it's fantastic the contribution that they've made to psychology and science. There is not a lot of empirical evidence to say that birth order has a significant effect on your personality. Um, you might be able to observe this in people, but honestly, it is such a small piece of the incredible tapestry of uh, external forces and internal forces that shape how we are, who we are, but mapping that onto uh, archetypes and mapping that onto a story can be really instructive as, as well as uh, you know creating and crafting your characters. But when we introduce in Thor Ragnarok, Hela, this gets really messy and crazy and interesting too because now we've upset the order of birth. We've upset the family constellation. So Thor is no longer the firstborn. Thor is a middle child, which is a very, very different kind of archetype or a very, very different uh, set of perceived behaviors, at least as far as uh, Adlerian psychology goes. And Loki is still the baby. Loki is still prone to this kind of revolutionary thinking. But we get to see a, a newer spectrum of Thor and we get to see a new dimension of Thor that is no longer as interested in the throne, of course, no longer as uh, deeply tied to the kind of uh, orthodoxies of Asgardianness, as you said, uh, and is more likely to upset that order. Hela is introduced as a figure who had to be banished because of what she represented. She was so high on the totem pole in that family that she became too powerful. And Thor came along and was just the image of Odin in this new image that he tried to create. Not a destroyer, but a wise god who ruled justly. When she comes back in and tries to reshape Asgard in her image, Thor destroys Asgard. Thor says Asgard's not a place, it's a people. And what is more revolutionary than saying that, than saying I will destroy my land, I will destroy my home, I will destroy the home of all of my people in order to preserve our ideas of justice, in order to preserve our feeling of community, in order to preserve our feeling of family. So I think it's really interesting to map this kind of uh, sibling effect onto the changes in the, uh, 
in the Odinson family? Yeah, I think one of the best things that they've done from adapting from the mythic tradition into the comic tradition and then hence into the MCU is to put a family line between Odin, Hela, Thor, and Loki. Yeah. In the mythic tradition, Odin has Thor. He also has Baldor. Oh, yeah, Baldor, yeah. Uh, Loki is not a son of Odin, but a blood brother of Odin. So they end up taking a blood oath to be brothers, but not a family member. Um, Hela, the, the character in the comic and the character in the the movie is the daughter of loki right is based off of i presume the character hell h-e-l-1-l yeah. and hell is one of three daughters of loki so loki in the myth mythic tradition has his family in asgard but then he also like skips out and heads over to jotunheim has a whole other family with jotunheim and in, in jotunheim and one of his three children there is hell and hell is given dominion over the realm hell, which has become known after her name, which is the realm of the dead. If you are a in Norse, you know, mythological religious tradition, if you were a great warrior and you died, the Valkyrie came and grabbed your soul and you went to Valhalla and you drank with Odin and Thor and all of them until the end of your, you know, existence. If you didn't do that, you went to hell and you lived under the dominion of hell and Hela as the goddess of death is a representation of that. It's interesting in the movie Ragnarok that she says uh, she finds the wolf Fanir, which is the wolf in the mythic tradition. It's not the name in the movie. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the movie. It's close. It's like Fenris. Fenris. But it's Fenrir in the mythic tradition is the sibling of Hel and also a um, son of, of Loki and a giantess and is this like super strong wolf that will just not stop growing that eventually devours the entire earth that gets chained up. And then there's the world snake whose name is Mungandr, the Midgard serpent, which is the serpent that surrounds Midgard or earth, which is the other uh, child of Loki and Loki, Jormungandr, Fenir and hell all band together to bring about Ragnarok and the end of the gods as we know it, which is not at all what happens in the Thor Ragnarok. And one of the benefits of how they approached it in terms of a cinematic experience is to link Hela, Loki, Odin, Frigga, and Thor as a one family unit, because I think that grounds the stakes between them as not only who has control over Asgard, who has the favor of Odin, but also what sibling is really the, the, the should be the sibling that they adore and that they love. Who should the Midgardians worship? Who should be the most loved and cherished child is a question within these movies. And it's part of the central and personal conflict between all of the characters. Yeah, yeah, who is the most worthy? It also deals so much with the shattering of illusions. Uh, Ragnarok does. It, it talks to, uh, I think, the, the sort of deified way that many of us view our parents and what happens when we grow up and find out that they're not perfect uh, as Hela brings down the the 
mosaics of Asgard to reveal Odin's true past as a destroyer and as a conqueror. I think it helps to shape Thor going forward, knowing that the wisest and greatest man he's ever known had flaws or had, you know, a a time of his life that he longed to forget, especially knowing that we go into a chapter of Thor's life where he feels like a failure. Uh, How will Thor rebuild from this? Well, it helps if he knows that the greatest man he ever knew rebuilt from feeling like uh, he was wrong or feeling like he was an unworthy failure. Yeah. So you're talking about specifically when Hela takes control of Asgard and she walks in and she sees these beautiful mosaics of Odin signing peace treaties with the frost giants, yeah. and Thor and Loki and Asgard and everybody looks beautiful. All the characters have these nice, beautiful Christian looking like medieval halos. And she just throws her daggers and it crumbles down And there's this whole mosaic of him, Odin, and Hela just slaughtering everyone that's in their way. I think I read what you're saying there, but I also, the historian in me pauses and reflects and says, in that moment, there's also a subtle argument of saying that you can, if you have enough power, distort the past and rewrite history in the way that is most advantageous to your interests. Absolutely, yeah. And Odin wants to be believed to be a benevolent, wise ruler who is always prepared for war but never seeks it out. Hela is the ward on that history saying that, hey, we sought out war. It wasn't just being prepared. We sought it out and we laid waste to our enemies indiscriminately, and dispassionately at any moment and any time. And Odin, because he banishes Hela, because he pushes her into hell, is able to say, no, we were always benevolent and prepared for war, willing to fight war, but never really were we like these warmongers. In fact, it's the main sticking point in the first the first Thor movie is that he thinks only as a warrior, not as a king. Odin's trying to teach him that. Well, Odin gets to cover up his own past because of his power. And I think there is an argument there to be wary of the narratives of the powerful. Be wary when they are saying, this is why we're doing what we're doing. We should scrutinize it, not to the point of cynicism, because obviously Odin is a better king than Hela will ever be queen. So not to the point where we should completely tear down, but we shouldn't just completely buy in all at the same time. I think that's absolutely right. And that's absolutely true. And that's uh, important for Thor going forward, because we know that Thor's early impulses were toward seeking out war and seeking out violence and vengeance. And we know that vengeance is something that continues to run through his blood and he has trouble checking at times. But he does. He does check it. Uh, He has an ability to recognize his own selfishness. He has an ability to recognize uh, that he is often seeking glory over justice. And overall, by and large, this is a character who seeks out justice and who, uh, when he is in his worst, at, at his worst moments, is willing to put himself on the line, put his... Uh, 
Rainbow Bridge, his Bifrost on the line, put Asgard on the line in order to protect a greater justice, which he sees in individual human worth. So coming back to that idea of worthiness, though he continues to struggle with it in himself, though he continues to struggle with seeing himself as worthy after everything he's been through, he sees every individual person on Asgard, on Midgard, on uh, Jotunheim as worthy of saving, as worthy of loving, as worthy of caring for, and he continues to care for those people. Yep, so we see Thor the king in the first Thor movie learning to be Thor, the, I'd say, broody warrior in Dark World, to Thor, the triumphant hero in Ragnarok, to Thor, the failure. And can we transition a little into Thor in Endgame? I absolutely think we should, yeah. I'd really like to talk about his role in Endgame. Most tragedies, when the tragedy happens, the story ends. That is the end we feel the catharsis or we don't and we move on. If we understand Thor narrative up to the movie Infinity War as a tragedy, the tragedy is his hubris, his vengeance. He still hasn't grounded himself enough to just take out his enemy. He has to taunt the enemy before they die. And that causes half of all life in the universe to end instantaneously. That in a tragic the traditional sense of a tragedy would be the end of that character and the end of their arc. And we, the audience would be left to wonder, maybe they'd show up as a side character, the way that Oedipus shows up in Antigone, but that would be the end of it. We get in Endgame the effects of being the tragic hero. What does it mean when you have lost your home, failed the people you were supposed to protect failed the Avengers, failed in your mission for vengeance when all of those other aspects were taken to from you by mad tyrants such as Hela and Thanos. And what do we get with Thor at, in Endgame? We get him sitting with his friends, drinking too much, and completely retreating from the world. And we get a Thor that is unnerved and unhinged. We get a warrior who's afraid to battle. We get a prince who's afraid to lead. And in that, we get a shell of a broken human being. We get to see the fallout of the tragedy in a way that is unique in narrative and storytelling, to my knowledge. And in many ways, they we talked about this before, they play some of that for laughs. And let me tell you, Chris Hemsworth, brilliant comedic actor. So I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. But when we get to see Thor talking to his mother in Endgame, and we get to see Thor just being like, I don't even know why I'm here. I'm so fucked up. I just need to talk to my mom. We see the God of Thunder crawling to his mother in a way of a form of like almost psychological regression, he gets to a childlike state where he can't control his impulses. He can't control his fears. He can't control any aspect of his life until he talks to his mom and finally gets Mjolnir. And it's like, I'm still actually worthy. And I think that is the, a, a brilliant place for Marvel to put this character 
It is a delightful subversion of expectations, considering how triumphant he was in Infinity War when he finally got Stormbreaker and started wielding that and turned the tide in the Battle of Wakanda to this broken, needs a haircut, needs a salad, you know, Thor. And I thought that was an amazing turn for this character. And the fact that he's able to overcome this in this movie and be able to finally fight with honor. It's important to note that in Endgame, he executes a prisoner. Now, granted, that prisoner is a genocidal maniac called Thanos, but that's the most brutal thing we ever see Thor do in all of his movies is Thanos is defeated and he chops his head off mid-sentence. That's fucking terrifying. So much so that Rocket turns and looks at Thor and goes, what did you do? Even Rocket couldn't believe that he just killed Thanos. The fact that he is able to acquit himself and regain his warrior status and defeat Thanos in the field of battle with his comrades, with other Asgardians and other Avengers, to me was just fucking triumphant. And I really, really can't wait to see what they do next with this character. I think leaving Endgame, I'm more excited about where Thor's going than any other storyline. I would do an entire trilogy of Thor and Rocket in space. Absolutely. I I agree with you on everything you just laid down. I think Endgame was a really fascinating study into this character. And in the same way that I was talking about how uh, they brought this godlike presence down to earth, this was in many ways an exploration of his vulnerability, an exploration of depression and exploration of grief. And while, yes, I explained in the Endgame podcast that I was not a fan of the way that they um, expressed his weight gain as a, a an expression of failure because gaining weight is not a symptom of failure. It's just how our bodies work sometimes. Um, but I thought emotionally his arc was one of the most, if not the most fascinating of Endgame because he is truly and genuinely moving through loss and grief. And that family order that we've been talking about has been completely upset and completely stripped away. While he had this incredible sibling rivalry that was deeply fraught with Loki, there was also deep love there. There was stronger love between those brothers than between most people in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They cared more for each other than most people in the Marvel Cinematic Universe do. So agree. And to have that taken away uh, with so little ceremony for a character like Loki who has been resurrected so many times, who has faked his death so many times, who always gets out of a jam and who wields great magic to simply be choked the life out of him uh, is is painful and is uh, sort of earth-shattering or Asgard-shattering for Thor. And to watch him move through that and the feeling of having been the guy who blew it in Infinity War, the guy who blew it in Wakanda, is a lot for a character who has always had great expectations on his shoulders, being the firstborn, being the heir to the throne, being the son of Odin. How could you blow it at that moment? And so watching him through that is heartbreaking and I think does end in a triumphant place, but it takes a lot for him to get there. Oh, yeah. And 
To that point, Thor has always, no matter what, he's always triumphed. And the Avengers in many ways have always triumphed, but Thor has a longer history than the other Avengers in the MCU. He's been doing hero work for thousands of years. So because of this, his failure is more, I I would say he internalizes it more than any other of the major characters. That not to say that like Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. He feels the failure of, of the infinity war, but he does move on and start a family. Captain America. He feels the failure of the infinity war, but he goes on and he becomes a grief counselor, right? They have some kind of a life. Thor doesn't even have a life. Thor does not move on. And think about it too. Uh, no one else had the the strength or the power. Nobody else had the trump card that Thor had in the battle against Thanos in Wakanda. He had the weapon. He had the ability. He had the power. And like you said, he also had hubris. He was also a tragic hero. So there was no way he could have dealt that killing blow in that moment, being the character that he was at that time, because he was the kind of character who needed to look into the eyes of the person who killed his brother and say, this is for Loki. Right. And his best friend. And I don't think there is any character in the MCU. I think I said this earlier that has lost more than Thor. Right. Just sheer quantity. Yeah. He's lost his, his father, his mother, his adopted brother, his best friend, his sister, his sister, his home planet, half half of the refugees that he left the home planet with Jane. He's lost all of the dwarves that make him all of the great weapons that he's used throughout the years, except for one. And then on top of all of that, he's still optimistically like I'm the hero and I'm going to save the day and loses man. Who wouldn't just shut themselves in and just be like, bring me the kegs of beer. I'm going to drink them a keg at a time. And play Fortnite with Meek and Korg. Yeah, you know, and just be like, let's just order pizza. Fuck it. I I fail everyone and, and have failed everyone. And the fact that he comes out of the gulf, out of that terrible rut that he is in, in Endgame, and decides that he wants to travel the cosmos again, was so interesting and so cool. I'm really excited to see where that goes. And I really feel like the main lesson that I take away from the Thor movies is you can always be true to who you are and who you feel like you should be without bowing down to the expectations. And it's totally okay if you completely fuck up along the way. And I think like you say that Thor is grounded in, in being so human. I think that is the, the the contrast between him and Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, because they are more godlike than Thor is. So Tony and, and well, let's start with first Captain America, Captain America's flawless of a human being. Yeah. You know, he has no flaws and that's why I fucking love him. Cause I wish I was Captain America and had no flaws. While Tony has his flaws, his hubris is also continually justified because every, at every step of the way, he is the smartest guy in the room. He's the guy that's just like, I will never ever help the Avengers 
and time travel is insane. Let me just go in my computer for a minute. And oh, fuck, I just discovered time travel. Right. Like, that's Tony Stark. And it's totally believable. I don't think it's a bad, but like, yeah, that's Tony Stark. Well, you know what? Thor's the guy that can sometimes be too drunk to win a fight. Thor's the guy that sometimes can be too much of an asshole that wants to gloat over his enemies, then defeat them. Thor's the asshole that's just like, I'm going to be king no matter what. I'm going to be the greatest king. Ah, shit. I'm not even ready to be king. I guess I'll try to be king. And now that I'm king, half of the refugees on my planet have all just died. Like, what the fuck? Like, Thor has lost so much more than the other main characters. And I think that's why he's interesting. That's why he's so much more human. And that's why he is... I'm also, like, very biased because I have a huge interest in Viking history and Norse mythology. So I have a natural like gateway into this character that I've like, I start really wanting to love the character. No surprise. I do. Yeah. But I do think Thor is one of, if not the most interesting MCU heroes. I absolutely agree. Um, As we're kind of wrapping up the last thing that I want to call out, especially as we're going into uh, you know, the next phase of Thor, the Asgardians of the galaxy, if you will. Uh, hopefully we'll see more Thor traveling through the cosmos, uh, having wild and crazy adventures, is that uh, throughout uh, throughout history and throughout the time that uh, Thor was a popular god uh, that one might sacrifice to or... Uh, exalt in your nation. He has come to represent uh, many nations, maybe Denmark. He's the spirit of Denmark or the spirit of Norway or the spirit of Iceland or the other uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, But over time, and of course, in the time of uh, the the rise of the Third Reich, Thor was co-opted by that uh, regime as a symbol of sort of Germanic roots and Aryan roots and uh, the nationalistic pride that they wanted to go back to. And so Thor has often had this kind of grounded in a nationalistic identity sort of feel to him as a, uh, as a god or as a spirit of Norse mythology, and sometimes for worse, not for better. But to see this character uh, destroy his homeland and say, uh, nope, we don't actually need to ground ourselves in this sort of mythicized idea of the hallowed ground of Asgard, and we can embrace all nine realms and beyond as worthy, uh, and we can travel through the cosmos and enjoy our lives and meet people and try to pursue a greater justice— it's saying no to that idea. It's saying no to nationalism. It's saying no to prioritizing one realm over another. It's saying yes to a, a greater fellowship of all living beings within the uh, infinite universe. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a direct correlation to the Asgardian refugees at the end of Ragnarok to the Jewish diaspora that occurred after Titus destroyed the Temple Mount in the Roman Empire, sure, scattering the the Jewish people from the um, from Jerusalem, and um, you know, so I think there is a connection between that refugee symbolically in the movie, and I don't think it's deaf to it, and I think that harkens back to the idea that there is not a nation of Asgard, 
nor is there a nation of Asgardianness, and rather there is a spirit of a people that can endure no matter where they go, and the idea of crushing the individual under the weight of that state is inherently wrong, and fuck you Nazis for taking Thor, one of the most egalitarian and fan-fucking-tastic mythological heroes, gods, and comic book characters, and trying to co-opt that to prove your inerrant superiority. Fuck you, Nazis. I have a quick final thought here. Go ahead. And I'd like to talk to my MCU diehards listening right now. MCU diehards listening, lay off Dark World. And I just got to say this. Every time I see a ranking of what are the best to worst MCU movies, Dark World is at the end of everyone's list. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not saying that is the best MCU movie, but it has fantastic art direction, amazing development of all of the characters. And yeah, I wish they developed Thor a little more in that because he's a little broody, but both Loki, the Warriors 3, Lady Sith, Jane Foster, Daria, all get major character advancements in that. Loki is charming as all hell. We get to see the world tree for the first time. We get to see living painting slash um, artwork. That's really cool. The illuminated manuscripts. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm not saying we should let its faults off the hook, but there's no way that's the worst MCU movie. Come on. We've seen Ant-Man and the Wasp. That movie's garbage. Like MCU fans. I'm just saying this right now. Lay off Dark World, it is not that bad of a movie. Yeah, the villain in it is one note, but every villain in most MCU movies wants to de- just to destroy the universe just because. It's rare when there's a villain that doesn't want to destroy the universe just to destroy the universe. So I just got to say this. I got I have to get this off my chest. Stop the Dark World hate. Is it a great movie? No. But is it better than the average MCU movie? Yeah. And on that note... Come at me, bro. Oh, wow. You just asked for it. Be kind. Be kind and fuck Nazis. 